0: What is More Die of Heartbreak about?
1: Well, to begin with, it's a comic novel. And a comic novel is not about, it's just something. <laughs> it's something that uh, takes its, dictates its own terms in its own way. But it refers to, the, the title comes from a conversation between uh, a character who is a scientist and someone who questions him about Um, radioactivity, uh, the the fallout from Chernobyl. And and he says, yes, that's all very serious, but still more people die of
0: heartbreak than of radioactivity. Meaning that um, the danger of mankind is not in the danger of uh, the world as uh, nature falling apart? Well, nature may fall
1: apart. There's nothing that mankind can do about that, but in the meantime, since it preoccupies people only Subliminally, so to speak, uh, th- what they are really preoccupied with are the, their own uh, sufferings and difficulties, uh, which um, which kill vast numbers of people about whom nobody nobody says anything. And uh, my scientist says, if there were uh, if there are many people protesting heartbreak as there are protesting radioactivity, Washington could never hold them.
0: One of your most famous books, or possibly your masterpiece, begins with the, the sentence, if I am out of my mind, it's all right with me. Would it really be all right with you to be out of your mind? Are you at all out of, out of your mind?
1: No, if what people would call uh, being out of your mind uh, were the fact, it's, uh, it's not so serious because almost everybody is. <laughs> In other words, you're holding on to your sanity, you don't really know what you're holding on to.
0: Is it worthwhile holding on to sanity? Well, it's, it's worthwhile to, um,
1: to be a human being uh, without giving way to poses, and especially poses of eccentricity. And uh, as Nietzsche once said, beware of interesting people. The more interesting they seem, the more terrible they are.
0: Why but do so many of your characters, thinking about Herzog, which I've just mentioned, why do they seem to be either deranged out of their minds, misfits, failures of some sort, even escaped slaves of, uh, of this century. Why so many misfits?
1: Well, I don't think they're really misfits. I think that uh, at the core they're sound, and it is all uh, their, their, uh, their oddities can be explained by their efforts to keep the nucleus of being intact in themselves. Uh, under terrible pressure. So it's not a question of their being um, mad or madly motivated, but a question rather of their of their Whitman-esque insistence on being themselves Um, in their own way and um, under terrible pressure. I think that uh, that uh individuals uh, who are individuals feel the pressure more acutely, which makes them
0: seem strange. Oh. Some people would have tended to believe, and still do to some degree, that your type of literature is not truly American; it's a lot more European. The American tradition is Walt <clears throat> Whitman, is uh, Mark Twain, is Emily Dickinson, is not Saul Bellow.
1: No, I don't think that's true. I think that I've th- I think that I'm probably more faithful to to uh, Walt Whitman and Mark Twain, than most American writers,
0: in in essentials. Do you feel close, though, to the European background which your family had and the type of education that you've gotten? I think that the modern person is really a, a, a cosmopolitan person,
1: and that national characteristics, while they are, of course, very important, no longer have the dominant power that they had a century ago. I think World War I ruined that for people and uh, what the revolution, uh, Russian Revolution meant in 1917 was, and the, all the civilized world felt this, that, uh, that, there were, that these transnational uh, characteristics of human beings, universal characteristics of mankind, were far more important than, than uh, national character. Now, mind you, national character is a force in itself. Uh, For instance, uh, the Russian resistance in World War II showed very strongly traits of of national character, nor do I believe in the Marxist-Leninist style that, uh, you know, um, that uh, that the the, uh, international of the working class uh, contain the answer to these uh, uh, national identifications. I don't believe that either. These are very complicated matters, but I think that um, in America, um, people call me European because of my uh, because of my own free will. I admit uh, what Europe and European culture has meant to me. In Europe, people tend to consider me either preeminently American or else even more Jewish. That is to say, you know, this is. This is what Jews do in the United States after, after they've grown up in that particular diaspora.
0: Talking about how you are considered in, in the United States, does it bother you to hear or to read that, uh, according to some critics, you haven't written anything quite as good as Herzog since Herzog 1964, therefore 23 years without having been able to write better than Herzog? Well, I don't know whether I write better.
1: Every book is different. And uh, um, the opinion of critics doesn't concern me too much, because uh, it's regimented. And they follow each other. And uh, as in politics, they really don't know what's happening. They have attitudes. But
0: that doesn't mean that they know what's happening. Is a great writer allowed only one masterpiece? Well, I think that
1: any writer would be grateful to write a single book that will survive, if that, if, you know. But it's, um, it's a horse race. You never know uh, which horse is going to win, and really it can't concern you very much. I'd be very grateful if I thought that I would continue to be read. Um, but it's a gamble that everybody has to, to take, and uh, really one can't
0: be too concerned about the outcome. Which one of your books do you consider your masterpiece, the book that uh, is closer to what you are and what you wanted to be as a writer? Well, there's a thread in all my books <clears throat> that, I, that I'm pleased with
1: and uh, appears. Uh, it begins to appear in Augie March where it's, the control is not very good because there was a novelty in Augie March which carried me away. There were, I made certain discoveries about the way American English might be written uh, with a new vigor, I invented a kind of sentence, which hadn't existed before. Well, that pleased me very much. Um, but then, you know, in in Henderson the Rain King, or in Herzog, or in Humboldt's Gift, or in some of my short stories, I, th- I think that I have uh, I've done my best
0: work. Do you think often to the past, to your childhood, to your youth, first in Canada, then in Chicago?
1: Well, I'm like one of these Northwest Coast Indian paintings. That is to say, the creature is broken up into, se- into separate parts, <laughs> but they're all equally prominent. They're all in the foreground. And my, uh, every part of my life is like that to me. That is to say, it doesn't fade into the past. It doesn't become dim. I have a very tenacious memory, and everything has uh, a great immediacy for me. And, in, and in, in the thought process, uh, processes of an hour, I can think of, oh, 20,000 things relating to, to what life is. And they will be just as vivid if
0: drawn from my childhood as from middle life or, or old age. You were exposed to a lot of languages. You also were exposed, if I remember correctly, to heavy reading. By your father in your family, reading was essential, important from the very beginning of your. Yes, family. my father was a reader, my mother too,
1: um, and e- an evening's entertainment was to read to the children. There was no radio, of course. There was no television. There were no movies. There was a movie, but that was uh, silent
0: pictures, and that was very special a treat. Were you were you educated by the streets or by books? By the life as you would see it or by the mediation of literature
1: well at the age of 4 as was traditional in, in such families i began to began to learn, read the old testament in hebrew so that was part of it
0: <laughs> <laughs> 4 is a young age
1: well 4 is a young age by the time i was 6 i knew quite a lot of hebrew i knew uh, i spoke english of course um I spoke Yiddish with my parents. My parents spoke Russian to each other. God knows what the Indians were speaking. <laughs> Iroquois, and, uh, and French, and English. Everybody was speaking everything.
0: Were you influenced, have you been influenced by your religion? In ways, it's
1: hard for me to identify, because I am, um, I am not uh, pratiquant. in uh, in any religion, Um, but my parents were, um, well, it was an orthodox family life.
0: The background of your family helped you to discover a number of political events as well. The Russian Revolution, what had happened uh, with Lenin, with Trotsky, uh, you were actually showing a certain affection for Trotsky. It later changed, but for some time you were interested. Can you tell us a little bit about that? My
1: father was always against the Russian Revolution. He thought it was a big mistake. He tried to convince me when I was young that I was wrong about my Marxism. Uh, the reason why I was attracted to Trotsky as a high school boy was uh, very simple. Trotsky had written a pamphlet, I think in 1932, on Germany, which, which I read as a high school kid. It made a great impression on me because he accused Stalin of having abandoned social democracy and weakened uh, the social democracy uh, to the point where Hitler's victory became possible. And this seemed to me perfectly reasonable. I thought it was true. I still think it's true.
0: Later on you abandoned your interest for Marxists, for Trotsky. You seem to have turned into a conservative. Many American critics seem to reproach you that. Do you feel conservative? I don't like to apply labels to
1: myself and I very seldom apply them to other people except labels of stupidity which I'm very free with. (laughs) But I don't think they really know what I'm about politically and since I'm not primarily a political person it is just a matter of convenience for them to stick me into this pigeonhole or that pigeonhole. But um, I don't think that I would call myself conservative. What I dislike is the radical fringe in the United States. I do dislike them. Their only reply to this is to call me a conservative. My reply to them is to say that they are détraqué.
0: In 37, after having lived for several years in Chicago, that somber city as you write in, in Augie March, you graduated in anthropology, sociology, literature. I'm curious about the anthropology choice that you've made. Why anthropology? Well, what should be more natural in, in a city like Chicago than to study primitive life. So Chicago is a primitive society?
1: Well in a way it was. It was uh, from every point of view um, uh, sui generis. That is to say it contained many European populations who tended to be uh, retrograde. Uh, they remained as they were
0: when they had come over. Over the years, Chicago has turned into many other things as well, gangsters, Mal Capone, uh, mafia, political um, degradation, urban degradation. What is it? Uh, Good old raw America, the epitome of uh, what is not functioning in America?
1: Well, it's it's a complicated matter. Um, Chicago is now some 40% or even more black. The blacks came from the south first as a labor force in the First World War and then even more of them came in the Second World War to replace people who had gone into the army and the, into the armed forces. Then of course these, when, they, when the soldiers returned, the jobs were reclaimed, uh, there was mass unemployment among the blacks, then the industries began to grow obsolete. Uh, the stockyards moved away because it was no longer economic to have them uh, in Chicago. The steel mills became antiquated. Um, the uh, the foreign competition in, in heavy manufacture made Chicago in, uh, into a part of what we now call the rust belt. These rusting industries, which we used to identify with New England when we middle westerners went to uh... massachusetts we would see all these ancient factories shoe factories textile factories and so on which were closed down and you could they were nineteenth century factories and they were falling apart now one sees that in chicago
0: you have gone through chicago recently when you were preparing for a number of um, essays, and when you finally decided to write the Dean's December, you researched the evils of Chicago. What kind of an experience was it? More of a journalist type of experience? What was it for you? What did it represent? I don't think it was a
1: journalistic type of experience, because I had lived there for most of my life, and when I wanted to uh, bring myself up to date, I did what I was doing all the time anyway. That is to say, I would anyway. Um, Go to the courts, uh, go to the uh, hospitals, public hospitals, go to the clinics, go to the police stations, go around with the police, um, visit the politicians, and so on. So I only did a little more of that before I wrote the Dean's December. Yeah, well, well, when I was very young, I read books. um, um, Well, let me start with this. When I was eight years old, I was very ill. I've never been ill since, but I was near death in a hospital in, in Montreal for eight months or so in a public ward, and I read a great many books this was my first opportunity to read on my own. Um, I was away from home and I was frightened, and I suppose I protected myself by reading books. Among them, the New Testament, which otherwise I would never have uh, put my hands
0: on. Reading gave you the idea to be yourself a writer? Well, it was very so, I was so very excited that
1: I thought I would like to do that. What is a writer? Who is a writer? Well, what kind of explanation
0: do you want? The serious one. (laughs) The sociological
1: one? No, the literary one. Well, it's a person who lives by his imagination. Imagination not being what people call the fancy, but imagination being the fundamental, and I would say godlike or divine, divinely inspired reaction to one's, to the strange fact that one is a human being living uh, who has appeared suddenly from where he doesn't really know, for how long he doesn't really know either. Uh, and although he tends to take the world for granted and, f- uh, and uh, is not surprised by all of these wonderful, miraculous things that surround him, he has to pretend not to be surprised, because at heart he is surprised, astonished, and delighted. And I think most people become blasé at an early age, and being blasé just means covering
0: up this astonishment at at having been born, being here. Fantasy is essential, imagination also, but I've read a definition of, of the writer, which maybe you can identify with. The writer as an historian of society with the gift of fantasy. So this connection with reality, with society is important as well.: Well, I suppose that he's a historian, yes, but he doesn't need to be a historian.
1: Um, what he doesn't do himso- what he leaves uh, empty, others will fill in for him. So if they get the historical sense from his books, they'll say he is a historian. But that doesn't mean that he was conscious of being one.
0: I was a little bit shocked, allow me to to tell you, to read, if it is true, that um, you once said, the only writer who has really influenced me is God. Is that so? Well, no, that's not so. That's not true.
1: (laughs) I wish I had a direct line. If I could say that, I would be made. No. No, what I really said was that I, I was uh, tremendously influenced by the Old Testament as a child. And that doesn't happen so much anymore. You know, there was a time when in the United States the Old Testament was the fundamental book of the household. Uh, there were breakfast prayers. Uh, people knew large portions of the Bible by heart. Uh, there were readings from the Bible morning and morning and evening readings and so on. And I think that it, that was really the core, uh, the, the mental and spiritual core of American life, up until a certain
0: moment. What is more important for you, philosophy or jokes? Jokes. Why? Well, because in, uh,
1: in uh, jokes, you respond to jokes because they tell the truth without your even knowing
0: it. Whereas, in, in, well, it's, I don't know, it's an unanswerable question. But you, you seem to believe that jokes are uh, more important than famous sentences and that uh, the, the life of a person could be encompassed by 10, 15 jokes.
1: Well, you know, jokes contain these powerful intuitions, otherwise we wouldn't respond to them. And sometimes they, they catch your mind as parables, um, Give us an example. Well, sometimes when I'm trying to get something right, I'm writing something and I'm trying to get it right. Then I remember the story of the American tenor at the Scala, he makes his debut, he sings his first aria, he gets tremendous applause, beast beast on chorus, he sings it twice, he sings it three times, he sings it five times. And then he makes a little speech, and then he says uh, how happy he is, how happy his mother is going to be. His family would be so proud of him, and he studied so hard, and he never and he never thought that he would make such a success of his debut. But the cast is waiting, the orchestra is waiting. Uh, we must go on, and a voice cries out, no, no, Beast, Ancora, and he says, how many times must I sing this aria? And, and a member of the public qu- shouts out, you're going to sing until you get it right. <laughs> Well, sometimes I feel that way. I'll sing it over and over again till I get it right. Well, there's an
0: interesting truth in that. Do you mean by that that you are a perfectionist, that you do work on experimentation in writing, but not as writing in itself, just to get your writing right?
1: Well, let me say that I hate to get I hate to get I hate to botch anything. I hate to get things badly wrong, seriously wrong. I uh I am a little fussy and obsessive about the way uh I write. I shouldn't be doing that. And um some people feel, and perhaps correctly, that a novelist has no business to be producing this uh fine uh, artistic texture. Um that uh, uh that a novel is more provisional, temporary harum-scarum, loosely made, uh, and uh, that um, perfection of surface is a mistake in the writing of novels. Some of the very great novels, novelists never took any trouble with it. Dostoevsky, I'm told, didn't. Dickens certainly didn't. Balzac was a very loose, sprawling writer. Even Theodore Dreiser, who was one of the best American writers, uh, wrote uh, awfully... Um, in a sort of newspaper pulp style. So why do I take so much trouble? W. H. Auden once told me that I was making a terrible mistake. He said, you're trying to write uh, fiction as though it were poetry. And he said, "Uh, you're doing the wrong thing, you're wasting your time. Well, at first I was annoyed with him, but afterwards, thinking it over, I began to think that he was right, that after all, one throws one's hat on the hook and hopes that it will stay there. If it falls off a few times, it falls.
0: You're talking about jokes. Uh, somehow you mention here and there that you are a comic writer. Irony, of course, is essential. It's constantly present in your books. Is it an, 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 uh, an heritage of, of your Jewish origin, of your Yiddish language, of your Yiddish culture? Does it come with that?
1: Well, yes, because I think that there is a great deal of it in in. Uh, in Jewish writing, and that it comes natural. And the, the, the greatest of Yiddish writers, like Sholem Aleichem, were very, very funny indeed. And, uh, and there is this sense of, you know, the impossibility of life, uh, the, the provisional character of everything, the, uh, the impossibility of finding anchorage, the insecurity, a hand-to-mouth existence, the uh, the terrible things that life does to you. Um, well, of course, groaning is monotonous, so I try not to groan too much. But this whole business of being a Jewish writer in America has been overdone, and I don't believe in it very much. America finds it very difficult to uh, to accept the fact that there is a polyglot uh, society, um, and a mixed society and a melting pot, or if you prefer, a, a pluralistic uh, <coughs> a social order in the United States. And of course, for, for, uh, uh <clears throat> until very recently, control of culture was in the hands of the wasps. It was all an Anglo-Saxon thing. Gradually, it began to slip away from them, because really it wasn't, it wasn't uh, sharply modern. Um, it was derivative from, from the English. And, uh, well, the great radical, of course, the great radicals in the 19th century in uh, American literature were Walt Whitman and Mark Twain. What Mark Twain did for American writing was to introduce the spoken language into prose. If you read Hawthorne, you don't hear the spoken language. There's no spoken language. Uh, when you read Mark Twain, it's all the in- an individual voice, uh, using uh, uh, the uh, common, uh, using a literary style based on the common language, and the spoken language, not the written language. And I think that everyone caught fire from this. And even Hemingway says, in the Green Hills of Africa, we... all real American writing since Mark Twain comes out of Mark
0: Twain. Professor Bella, which place do ideas have in literature? Well, Kafka said that ideas, abstractions, were a cage for the writer.
1: Uh, the, the writer is a bird in that cage. And it's not a good idea, really. I mean, <clears throat> one must break through the barrier of ideas with something else. Uh, Jung also said that there are uh, forces more primitive than ideas which matter far more in literature uh, than uh, than this uh, dialectical dance of abstractions. Of course, writers, and especially uh, writers in the the English-speaking world, uh, and in the German world Germanic world have felt that the task of a writer is to edify and to lead mankind and to to uh, to instruct uh, and to teach manners and all the rest of that. Uh, this was especially powerful in a raw country like America in the 19th century where writers like Emerson or Thoreau uh, uh, f- felt that it was uh, direct responsibility of of the writer to provide struggling mankind in a democratic society with uh, uh, proposals on how to live, the conduct of life, the formation of character, of personal character, and and all the rest of that. But it's become an awful thing uh, in reality, And, and it's only palatable when somebody like Dostoevsky uh, gives you uh, ideas uh, which are, uh, which are involved with life and death struggles, good and evil struggles, and so on, otherwise, it is just an educated patter, and it doesn't really amount to anything, and it, it really is, it does represent a kind of imprisonment for the mind. Also, the writers themselves are not the primary generators of ideas. The primary generators of ideas are the scientific world, now the scientific establishment, and uh, and of uh, v- certain very special branches of of, uh, of philosophy. Uh, but even that has to be broken through, um, and even uh, you know you know. The, the leading, uh, I suppose the most potent of modern philosophers was Nietzsche who told us that God was dead and we would have to live without him and we would have to find our way uh, through the will to power, our own knowledge, self-knowledge, self, uh, inner, inner impulses, uh, obedience to the forces of nature within us, uh, control uh, of, of the forces of nature and all the rest of that It is personal control. But even that seems to me to be misleading, so that a man spends many years of his life acquiring, amassing ideas uh, or uh, theories for the conduct of life, which in the end are nothing. Nothing at all. They're foolishness. They're a joke. And this is part of the joke. Of course, that is to say, this is part of the the comedy of what I write. A, A book like Herzog which was read so seriously by people as a Bildungsroman, was meant by me to be the very reverse. That is, it's a story of a man who throws away his education. He's an American PhD who doesn't know what to do when his wife is unfaithful and runs away with another man. It's a sort of joke because then when when he when he tries to find in his education resources to brace himself, begins to write these wild letters to everybody, what he does is to diseducate himself so that he finally comes back to square one to a kind of humanity um, which involves the rejection of all of the elaborate acquisition of knowledge and the intricate processes of thought that he's pursued for most of his life which are no good for him. He has to jettison
0: them. True, at the end her success, I have no messages anymore. I have That's nothing right. to say. I have no letters to write. And yet for 300 pages, and you through him, he has spoken about philosophy. At times you'd look like a disguised philosopher, not a writer.
1: (laughs) Yes, I know. But if you read it closely, you see that it's all subversive. Uh, That is to say, it's a joke. Uh, If your wife leaves you, do you start pulling Spinoza and Hegel off the shelf to find out why she did it or what you should do now? (laughs) Where are you going to find the text for this? So in, in a way, it really is a sort of a comic comment on our devotion to theory. Um, there is nothing wrong with theory, but the fact is that what we need is, as he says himself, what, this, what we need is a five-cent synthesis. That is to say, we need to know what to get rid of because these encumbrances of thought are killing us. We think, we, we, and we believe we're really thinking, but we aren't, we're mistaken. So what we need is the core of thought, and all the rest of it is just nonsense for us.
0: You are, of course, a sophisticated knower of philosophy. Which is the core of philosophy which interests you and motivates you through your books? Well, let me give you an example of something. I, I, this is a continuing thing,
1: and I'm always doing it. Now, recently I read a writer who fa- fascinates me uh, deeply, and this is what he points out, uh, that there was a struggle between enlightenment and religion, beginning with, the, uh, with Bacon and Hobbes and Locke, and all the way to, Je- to uh, Voltaire, Jean-Jacques, and all the rest of that, to do uh, religion in once and for all. Um, Now, the tone of mockery is uh, very important for the Enlightenment. That tone of mockery has remained for us. It is part of what we we find as comedy in modern literature. Now, it appalls me to think that what I have always thought of as my own uh, comic inclination really reflects this attempt of enlightenment to get rid of religion. Now that's a very important thing to know, but when I think of the other things that I did in my lifetime, and all of the things that I studied seriously because I was such an earnest young Jewish kid in Chicago trying to find his way in life, and I studied behaviorism, and I studied biology, and I studied zoology and I studied, I read Darwin and I read Marx and I read Freud, and all of these things which I had to read in order to instruct myself, inform myself, in the end I reject. I get rid of them. I don't want them. I went as far as existentialism and so on and so on, and then I thought, I'm just wasting my time because all of these other things are disappearing. Almost as fast as they appear, and what am I pursuing them for? Now we have deconstruction. you know I mean, this is uh, uh, all of this all of these things which come and go and which really try to which really tried which really are part of the creation of a class, the educated class, to impose itself as a necessity on society and impose upon the young, Through education, mostly bad and false education, and all the rest of that. Whereas the the essentials, which are discoverable, are neglected. So what we need are the essentials. And this other stuff we should jettison. And this this is what I'm really... this is what the irony is in my own writing.
0: Let's get rid of this junk. And at the end of deconstruction, what remains as essential? What remains as essential is the strength and power
1: of the intellectuals who don't even need literature anymore, they get rid of it. Don't need it, don't want it.
0: Nietzsche says God is dead. Herzog says death is God. Whom do you stand with? I think Herzog is out of his mind.
1: (laughs) Well, what he's saying is that the power of death is so enormous the terror of death, which, and I will accept this much of Rousseau, uh, is one of the things that Rousseau defines the bourgeois by. He says the bourgeois mentality is characterized by, among other things, terror of death. Timor mortis. So uh, you say, all right, well, that's true. And you observe it, you accept it up to a point. Um, But of course if you if you live by, by, your, by the, your sense of humor, you really don't have any firm philosophical responsibilities.
0: But um, always Hurtstag says the ignorance of death is destroying us. Yes, because we, we live in terror of it.
1: We, uh, we have no way to reconcile ourselves to it. It's one of the great themes of Tolstoy, for instance. Uh, how should one die? Uh, under what, you read a book like The Death of Ivan Ilyich, the question there is, What should a man be thinking as he dies? And how is he to overcome the terror of death? And how is he to reconcile himself to his to his existence, to his being? And uh, and these are the things that should concern everybody and do concern everybody. They eat away at you, if you're not thinking about, if you avoid them, they eat you up. They devour you, and therefore, what Herzog says is is true in that sense.
0: How do you face your own death? How do you prepare yourself for that moment?
1: Well, I don't know for what reason I appeared on the face of the earth. All I know is that it was a marvelous and exhilarating experience. That to exist itself is a glorious thing. How it will end, I don't really know. Uh, I don't know the answers. In a sense, I have a feeling that death is not is not the end, but I couldn't prove it to anybody.
0: Professor Bello, in your books, women seem to always be in the background of men's anguishes. Does that um, hide a little bit of misogyny on your part, or not?
1: Uh, well, that's a cr- that's. <clears throat> That's a question that might be asked by the Inquisition. <laughs> it has a little bit the flavor of an Inquisition. Uh, you should be wearing a San Benito. <laughs> and I should be on the rack. Um, my only, uh, the only thing I have to say about women is that if, uh, my, my wish always was to make them happier than I found them. and, and
0: do you feel you've succeeded?
1: Well, yes, I think in a way. Um, of course, I'm not a social service agency, and that's not that's not what the thing is about. Um, I think Humboldt, uh, in Humboldt's Gifts, the poet says, um, or I, or Charlie Citrine says about the poet. Um, he wanted to do. He wanted to do them good, but they wouldn't hold still for it. <laughs> well, the Nobel Prize. Let's start with that. <clears throat> uh, it was a wonderful thing. It was. I was delighted to have it, especially um, uh, because it's because my feeling that certain people should be um, <laughs> should be punished for their wickedness toward me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they said so many disobliging things and I felt that I was wiping them out. On the other hand, it's something of a joke also, because they give all of these awesome prizes to the hard sciences and then at the end they have a little prize for, uh, for a, a, a writer. Seems to me unfair to the other arts also. But then, okay, why shouldn't a writer have one of them? Uh, yes, it's, it's, it's okay. The arts should be recognized, and sometimes I think that when mankind comes to an end and the, the crypt is built for our last rest, the artists will be asked to choose the wallpaper <laughs> for the interior. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Did you tell that to President Mitterrand when he awarded you the Légion d'honneur?
1: Well, I was—I felt like joking with with Monsieur Mitterrand, whom I greatly admire, and who is a, a wonderful person, and a very intelligent one, and a very accomplished writer. And, uh, but, but um, there's a certain gravité on those occasions in, the, in a place like the Elysee Palace, and it was a question whether my um, impertinence was going to be out of place, perhaps, in these. Um, Intimidating surroundings. And I don't like to feel intimidated. Did you speak freely with him? Well, we had some very pleasant conversation. At the moment when he put the ribbon around my neck, I said something I sh- perhaps I shouldn't have said.
0: <laughs> Which is?
1: <laughs> I said, Vaut mieux être décoré upon Dieu," because I felt <laughs> this thing around my neck. But he didn't respond.
0: I don't know what he made of it. A European background, European culture running through your books, the love for philosophy. I feel comfortable in asking you an opinion, a judgment on American culture now. How do you feel that uh, America is growing into culturally, socially, politically?
1: Well, I think this is a bad moment for all, for culture everywhere, because uh, because um, technology, advanced technology is galloping away with us in all directions, and we have to try to keep pace humanly with it. And I'm afraid it's not possible to keep pace humanly with it. And I see more and more young people going to the university to um, to get an MBA, Master of Business Administration, uh, or some other specialty having very little to do with a, with a common cultural life of the country. And therefore, there's a sort of void uh, where the cultural life of the country should be. And television, for instance, is making some effort to, uh, to fill it up. Uh, the professors are suffering a terrible defeat in this respect, because they're not able to fill up the void. That's quite clear. Uh, education is in terrible, terrible state. Uh, in the, not only in the U.S., I gather. Um, and people just don't know the kind of things that they ought to know in order to read a classic. Uh, they just don't know what it is anymore. They've, they've lost track. And uh, this, if, if this should be lost, it would be a very serious loss.
0: Allow me to tell you that, looking at you, having seen pictures over the years, you seem to show more and more a look-alike with uh, Buster Keaton.
1: Oh, uh, it was my nickname when I was a child, was Buster in the neighborhood, because somebody noticed this about sixty years ago.
0: (laughs) But I did resemble Buster Keaton, yes. Let me ask you about American cinema. Just one of your books, Seize the Day, has been turned, has been made into a movie. Woody Allen quotes you in Zelig, says that you are one of the greatest talent of the century. You are quoted along with Woody Allen and Kafka in this uh, uh, portrait of um, American madness. What is your response to cinema? What are you interested in when it comes to cinema? Well, I don't see very much of it anymore. I used to
1: see much more. Um, it seems to me much more uh, twi than it used to be um, of course we know and this is one of the things that i that I would 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 like to say uh we know that uh, character is no longer the stable entity uh, that um, that we used to f- find and be guided by in say nineteenth century literature where character itself was like a bourgeois property. It was a big, stable thing. Um, uh, and this is what you f- what you found in um, in many of the great 19th century masterpieces. Preoccupation with and presentation of a large, full um, character of people. In the 20th century this becomes much more sketchy, as if there weren't all that much to the person, or as if the person were not a large piece of bourgeois property, as in a Balzac novel, or in a a novel by Zola, where you knew everything, every line in the face, every gesture, every article of clothing. Uh, This full presentation no longer gratifies uh, our taste and doesn't seem to reflect our present condition, which is much more transitive, fragmentary, um, and where the very individuality or, or, the, or the core of personality comes into question as as in an elusive thing, so that uh, we are. N- we are not satisfied. we don't we, we, we take a historic interest, perhaps, in a novel by Trollope or or uh, Victor Hugo, but we don't take the same kind of these things bore us now. We don't really want to read them. We don't want to see anybody treated at such length, in such depth, with such roundness and so on.
0: Do you ever fear that, uh, as Herzog at the end of the book, you will have no messages for anyone at one moment, nothing, not a single word?
1: Well, I think that every, uh, every human being, every, every, the problem is the problem of, of, uh, of the individual. We know that nature sends us into life um, with the stamp of individuality upon us. Even our fingerprints are unique, as Berk de Jong discovered. Uh, now, this uniqueness must be in every part of our configuration. Uh, on the other hand, the, the pressures of, um, of um, generality are so heavy upon us uh, and so seductive also that although we assert our individuality in various kinds of indi- idiosyncrasy, true individuality is, is, um, is becoming a scarce commodity. Now, what is this? This is tragic because it means that something is happening in our life. That the situation is too uh, too revolutionary. That the conditions are too oppressive. Uh, that they are that 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 um, modern existence is no longer a congenial uh, milieu for for individuality. Um, Sometimes it's questionable whether there is any such thing. Um, I think people are sometimes are happy, and this is, in whatever form you, you find it, even if it seems to be a liberating form, tends to be a kind of totalitarian influence in modern life. People are happy to dispense with this, find something that they can more readily identify with Which seems to reflect individuality, but which is in reality the very opposite of individuality, which is a kind of
0: um, stamping out of of individuality. Professor Bello, thank you very much for having spent a few hours, a few days with us. You have carte blanche for a final statement, whatever you want us to hear.
1: Well, I don't really have any final statement. (laughs) Final statements are for the pulpit. Final statements are for the editorial page. Uh, with a writer, everything is provisional, transitional, and has to have some human context. But as for delivering a uh, a uh, volley or cannonade of final opinions, that's not for me. Thank you very much, just the same.
0: Thank you very much.